A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, I love Tuesdays because I feel like I get a reality check. That's when my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com joins us. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm just standing here emitting carbon dioxide, bad man that I am. Oh, <laughs> next you'll be cutting holes <laughs> with every in the breath ozone. I take. <laughs> with every breath I take. Well, it's you know, life is certainly not getting uh, any less complicated. But um, I know you do your level best to make sense of it all. We've got a lot going Ooh. on. Um, let's let's begin with the, the the latest column. I think you posted this one this morning. Roads are racist. Why does that not surprise yeah, me? Well, maybe because they're blacktop. Well, that was a bad joke. I probably. <laughs> yeah, it's this, it's this just nutty argument that the entire interstate highway system was specifically designed to isolate black people and allow white people to get away from them. When in fact, of course, uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. It was what gave all of us the option to get away from wherever it was that we didn't want to be, black people included. And there's this. This, this really patronizing and condescending attitude that, well, black folks are just too dumb to, you know, to move from a bad area. They're just going to sit there and squalor, and, and you know, they, 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 they're not capable of, uh, of, of getting a car and of driving somewhere else and living somewhere else. Uh, and it, it completely ignores the reality that there are lots of black people who live in the, in the suburbs and in the country, uh, and somehow they weren't forced to stay in the city. Um, when in fact, what this is all about, you and I were talking about this a little bit off the air, it's another way that they're trying to pincer maneuver people into this, what they call 15-minute uh, city, uh, you know, where you don't know who needs an interstate. You don't, you don't need to go to another state to, for a job or because you want to live in a different area. You've got everything you need within 15 minutes of where you live in this nice urban centrally planned uh, hub that we've got waiting just for you. But it sounds like at least the, the way I'm seeing the 15-minute cities, I think in Scotland they're doing 20-minute cities. Apparently they're more generous. Mm-hmm. But the idea is they're creating zones, and I mean with cameras that, that monitor and track who yep. comes in and out of these zones. Um, the only thing they don't have yet are checkpoints with, you know, sandbags and, and machine gun emplacements. But can that be far behind when you start controlling people's movement like that? Well, logically, I don't see why not. Ultimately, it's of a piece, isn't it? With uh, you set the predicate, uh, you must wear a mask. And what's implicit in wearing of the mask? Well, it's necessary to wear the mask. If it's necessary to wear the mask, then it's necessary to get the jab, isn't it? So, you know, if it's necessary to herd people into these 15-minute cities, uh, then it's necessary to keep them in the cities. And how are we going to do that? So the question kind of answers itself. And I I often try to explain that to people, to just sort of connect the dots and follow where everything goes, that one thing does lead to another. Well, and as you point out in in your article on the World Economic Forum's war on rurality, it really Mm -hmm. comes back to they don't want us. They, being the ones who, the central planners who think they know what's best, they don't want people to be able to travel. They don't want us to be able to wander, I guess, off the reservation. They've been explicit about it, uh, at least lately. If you go back about 50 years, you can read it in their internal papers that they were writing for each other back then, but they dared not say it aloud. Uh, Recently, over the last couple of years, they've begun saying it out loud, literally saying it out loud. Uh, Klaus Schwab, the WEF, recently said 
uh, that owning a private car is unsustainable and immoral. Wouldn't you know? Of course, not for them, just for us. And this ties into the electric vehicle thing, which I write about and speak about often. The electric vehicle is an excellent way to get people out of cars. They're expensive and they're impractical, and they're particularly so for people who live in rural areas. They're simply not tenable. And that's the point. That's the objective. And, you know, Klaus and co. are now telling us about it right there in, in our faces. And I think it's time that we pay attention to what they say. No, I, I completely agree. And and the crazy thing about this is, you know, those of us who, who live in a more rural environment, and I, I'm not trying to flex on anybody here, but we have a greater measure of freedom, even if there are some inconveniences that come along with living, you know, outside of the population centers. No question. Uh, it's much harder to control people who live in a less densely populated area. For example, we don't have those Alpers, the automated license plate readers uh, on on, uh, on lampposts, because there aren't lampposts everywhere. It's easier for us to, and I hate to use the, the, their term, but here it is, to get away with not following all of their diktats. Uh, we're more independent. You know, and that's, that's the problem. You know, it's not for nothing that the communists literally talked about in the Communist Manifesto, uh, this idea of uh, getting rid of uh, rurality, that I call it that, the people who live in the country who don't live in urban areas. They want everybody pushed into, herded into these dense collectivized uh, hubs where they are much easier to control. In the old Soviet Union, that's what Stalin did. Uh, there were these cl- a class of people that were called the Kulaks, which me- essentially meant small farmers, people who lived in the country, uh, folks like that. And they were systematically demonized and they were forced off their land and, and herded into these collective farms and collective things because that is how you control people. You know, you deprive them of their ability to act independently, and by doing that, you make them dependent. Yeah, I understand. It's uh, it's not a lot of fun, you know, to, to think about being, you know, basically penned up like an animal. But to me, that's that's what these urban centers, these 15-minute cities, and, and by 15-minute cities, you correct me if I'm wrong, if I understand correctly, that's you aren't supposed to venture more than 15 minutes from where you live. Well, not only not supposed to, they want to make it essentially impossible for you to do so by uh, eliminating your access to a privately owned vehicle. So that means you can only go as far as your feet will take you, whether you're on foot or on, on a pedal bike. Of course, there will be buses uh, and so on, but those will be controlled by the government. And if the government decides that the bus or the train uh, doesn't stop outside of your 15-minute zone, uh, then you don't go outside of your 15-minute zone. Do you remember the great BBC show, The Prisoner, from, oh, from yeah. back in the late 60s? Definitely. And The Village. The Village was the model for these 15-minute cities. It was this self-contained little universe, which on the surface, it seemed very smiley-faced. You know, oh, they had nice little cafes, and the people would wave and say hello every day, but you were trapped in the village. And the village was completely controlled and completely monitored by these unseen central control figures. And that is what... You know, if that's what that's what they have in mind for us as the as the the future way for us to live. Well, and as the the uh, key character, uh, you know, pa- played by Patrick McGowan in The Prisoner, would say, "I'm not a number," but that's exactly what we're being reduced to. Literally being reduced to, because what is the uh, you know the barcode uh, or the thing that you scan? Ultimately, it's a number. And all these numbers uh, that go into that, you know, you buy food, and each piece of food that you buy, it's a number. Uh, and all of the, the transactions that you make are associated with a number. And these numbers then are collated and recorded and sifted and analyzed. And that's what you become. You're no longer a human being. You're simply a widget uh, 
uh, that has various numbers assigned to it. By the way, I wanted to point out the World Economic Forum, I guess, is is having a gathering here sometime soon in, in Davos. And uh, I think it's Jordan Schachtel who does the dossier substack. Very good investigative mm-hmm. reporter. He was able to obtain a list of U.S. officials who will be attending. Would it surprise you to learn that uh, it's going to include officials from the CIA and and from other intelligence agencies and the FBI? You know, it. How about that? It's like it's almost like they're working hand in hand with some of these uh, you know central planners. Imagine that. You know, and, and I will say that at the, at least and this is a very slim defense, but at least the people who work for the CIA and the FBI and whatnot are uh, in some sense. Uh, appointed officials of elected representatives that we had some small degree of control over. But who is this Klaus Schwab character and all these other people at this, this WEF, this forum? Who, who appointed them to become the rulers of the earth? And, and how is it that they wield such immense control uh, over the nations of this earth? I think it's a question that bears answering. Yep. It just makes me more determined that, uh, you know what, I'm going to find satisfaction in attending to my chickens, in, in tending to my garden. We had a good chance to yep. put this to, to, to the test last year. And while I won't say that I have a green thumb, our garden produced more food than we could possibly use. We gave away as much as we could. And I'm still ashamed at the amount that went to waste simply because we, we couldn't eat it all. Well, then you got to get into canning. Oh, and that's with canning. I it just, I guess oh. we underestimated how productive a gardener yeah. could be, and uh, and thankfully my in-laws are very generous and, you know, gave us a very nice garden space to work with. But um, all I know is there was a lot of work involved, but I found it to my satisfaction to be able to produce yes, more of the absolutely. food that we need. Mm-hmm. And not only to your satisfaction, but to your benefit in that having a surplus of what you don't need is a, uh, a great way to be able to get what you do need through barter should things get uh, hard, as I expect that they probably will. Or should somebody entertain the idea of, oh, I don't know, imposing a digital currency that would be, again, centrally planned, controlled, and you know, yeah. contingent upon how well are you behaving yourself? Yep. And by the way, have you priced a dozen eggs at the store lately? Yes, I have. Wow. Wow is right. A dozen eggs in my area now uh, are eight bucks for a dozen eggs. Makes gas seem reasonable, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And I wouldn't be surprised if when we talk six months from now, that same dozen eggs, if you can still find them at the store, uh, might cost 15 bucks. Unbelievable. Hold that thought. We're going to come back and continue our conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. There is a link in the show notes where you can go straight to his website. My show notes can be found at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, can I share some good news with you? Oh, please, I need some. Okay, here's some good news. Uh, April of 2020, right in the midst of all the lockdown mania, a mother in Meridian, Idaho, took her kids to the park. And uh, when a police officer showed up and said, you can't be here, the park is closed, she questioned him. In fact, uh, he started he started to count down. You're going to either leave or I'm going to arrest you if you aren't gone by the count of five. One, two, three, you know, talking like he's talking to a kindergartner. And she basically told him, well, why don't you just go ahead and arrest me then? He did. Mm -hmm. And the state of Idaho has kept trespassing charges against this woman. Her name is Sarah Brady. 
not that Sarah Brady. This is the good Sarah Brady. And mm-hmm. they have drug her through $40,000 worth of legal fees and months and months of putting off a trial. Well, we have a new attorney general here in Idaho who is a very freedom-minded individual. Last week, he moved to have all those charges dismissed. The The uh, prosecutors on the case unanimously agreed it's time to drop the charges. Finally, some common sense Finally. has returned. Now, the reason I but share... Will she be reimbursed the $40,000 in legal fees? Not likely. You know, yeah. being the state means never having to say that you're sorry. But here's here's this is the tie I wanted to bring in. I noticed uh, for New Year's she posted an, uh, a nice little avatar on uh, on Facebook, and it was Captain Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly, and it says, "My New Year's resolution: I aim to misbehave." And I think Excellent. I think that's that's actually a resolution I would like to make and follow through on, you know, for the rest of the year. But to to misbehave doesn't mean you're going out blowing up government buildings a la Timothy McVeigh or anything like that. Sometimes that misbehavior takes a very simple uh, form of, of withdrawing consent. And you had a wonderful article mm-hmm. on secession. We all secede. Talk to me about uh, about what it is and why is this a cuss word in so many circles? Well, politically, it's an un, you know, unsayable word. Uh, it, it's almost a, a profanity to utter it, even though in our uh, day-to-day lives, we regularly secede. We stop going to restaurants that don't serve us well, for example. We secede from jobs that don't suit. We secede from where we happen to be living because, hey, I found a better place to live. This is the natural order of things, uh, and it's certainly the peaceful order of things. You know, If you find that something is um, unpalatable or, or worse, uh, the solution is not to go to blows over it. It's to figure out a way to, to get away from it and, and to start somewhere else that's more, uh, that's more suitable, more amicable, more dis- disposed toward your, your way of thinking. And that same thing applies on a political level. You know, every July 4th, we celebrate Independence Day. We're not allowed to talk about it, but it's secession <laughs> day. It was secession from the British Empire. That's by definition what it was. It wasn't a revolution. What happened in France uh, around the same time, that was a revolution, which was an, a, a complete overthrowing of the existing order uh, and its replacement by something radically different. That's not what happened in America. Amer- the American colonists simply wanted to part ways from the British Empire. That's it. They didn't seek to go to Britain and have the king guillotined and have parliament disbanded. That would have been a revolution. The same thing with regard to what is called the Civil War, which was nothing of the kind because the South was not looking to occupy the North and force the, the North to live under a government decreed upon it by the South. The South simply wanted to go its separate way, very much as the American colonies did. And so I think it's important to be correct in our word usage, and even more importantly, to get back to your point, on a very personal level, to exercise the same thing in our own lives. You know, we, live, we find ourselves living under a, an unacceptable, a corrupt, a morally repellent system, and we have it in our power to secede from it, just in terms of our own hearts and minds, and say, I'm not going to accept this as legitimate, and to the extent that I can, I'm going to, as you put it, misbehave and ignore it and evade it. Yep, and that's that's the key. You can peacefully withdraw, and, and, and yet I think we're supposed to believe, well, anybody who says the word secession is, well, they're just looking to reinstitute slavery and, and rebel against yeah. the legitimate government, but when a government becomes abusive, it loses its legitimacy. It does. And, you know, it's a real tragedy that the, the history of the so-called Civil War has been framed in terms of a debate over slavery. Uh, Thomas DeLorenzo, the historian and author, has done a great service in explaining that that was a cover story, that that was used by Lincoln uh, to further his, his true agenda, which was not to abolish slavery. It was to impose 
federal authority over the South, period. He said so explicitly. It's not an opinion. It's not a debatable point. He said that he would happily tolerate and abide slavery where it existed, provided the southern states agreed not to depart from the Union. In fact, anybody who's interested in this stuff ought to read the Lorenzo's books. They're outstanding. So it's a shame that the history of it has been distorted to that extent. Agreed. And it does take some courage, you know, for you to reach the point where you say, okay, this is intolerable or to at least there's a line that's been crossed where I cannot continue. I have to break with polite society, so to speak, and, and go my own way. And, and not everybody sure. wants to do that. You, I don't, I don't know what it is. If someone wants to separate from the system, it's like the, the people within the system are trained to attack them and drag them back yeah. against their will. Yeah, it's as if uh, the posited perfect, perfect state is to be a herd animal, to do whatever the herd does. And does that make sense to anybody? If you really think about it, you want to wear the same clothes, you want to have the same job, you want to do what everybody else does. And I know a lot of people do that, but instinctively, we all rebel against that. We decide, you know, I, I want a different kind of a car. Uh, I'd like to live in this neighborhood rather than that neighborhood. Uh, not just any old person is going to do for my spouse. I want somebody that I love and that, you know, that, that I have commonality with. And I certainly don't want to be married to somebody who I'm at odds with at all times. And, you know, marriage is an instructive example, I think, in that very few people would say that a marriage that has irreconcilable differences, where it's just not possible anymore to come to some kind of mutually agreeable understanding that's a benefit to both people, if that's the case, then the, the same thing to do, the decent, humane thing to do, is for those people to part ways. And why doesn't that apply on the political level as much as it does on the individual level? Agreed. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to be very alarming to the anti-secessionists, but uh, a matter that is settled by force only shows you who's the stronger. It doesn't show right or wrong. And, and I think yeah. that's something to keep in mind when you think about the war between the states. Well, it is. The reason, I think, one of the reasons that we live in such a tense uh, country right now is for precisely that reason. It's no longer, uh, as it was put in the Declaration, uh, the consent of the governed. Clearly, we don't consent to this. You know, we, we are under duress. We are being coerced. We're compelled. We're forced. Very few people want to live this way. So is that a good thing? Wouldn't it be a better thing if, if we could figure out a way to live in a society where you know, by and large, you may not agree with everything, but hey, you know, this is okay. This is a pretty good system. We live in an imperfect world, people by imperfect people. But this is a pretty good setup. We're really happy that we have it. Let's keep it going. Here, here. Now, nobody can make that decision, though, unless they first understand what their rights are and are willing to stand up and claim them and use them and defend them. Yep. So Absolutely. there's a bit of a learning curve here. It's not just going to come to you naturally. And I, th I think one of the best lessons I've learned over the years is the people who want to be in control of you will not give you permission to separate from them. You have to choose to do yep. so yourself. You know, I would even characterize it not so much as learning, but remembering. Once upon a time, Americans had this uh, kind of a, an ancestral or historical memory of individual sovereignty, of being endowed with the right to pursue happiness as they saw it, to be let alone, and to leave other people alone. And I think we need to remember that. And that's how we recover uh, what, we, what we mean, most of us, when we talk about America in Airfinger's quotes, which was a place where, hey, do your thing. Be happy. Go out and have fun. And as long as you're not hurting somebody, I don't have to agree with you, but do your thing and I'll do my thing. Yeah, there's, there's way too much of the attitude of if you do not obey me or if you do not comply with whatever directive I'm telling you, that makes you a bad person. I, I would beg to differ. Yeah, and I know it's you striking. Too. 
Yeah, and to me, it's particularly striking that that attitude is now most predominant among leftists. You know, the, the, the supposed people who uh, were interested, uh, above all, uh, in free speech, free expression, uh, letting people do their own thing. They've become the most authoritarian, instinctively reflexive, authoritarian-minded people imaginable, far worse than the most crew-cut uh, right-wing uh, conservative <laughs> of the Nixon era, in my opinion. Hear, hear. And Eric, this is why I enjoy having you on the show each week, because uh, that is a straight-up, uh, full-strength dose of common sense. Thanks again, my friend. Let's talk again next you Tuesday. Bet. Sounds great. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfoods.com. Make that lifesavingfood, as in singular, dot com, as well as monticellocollege.org. I appreciate my sponsors and everything they do to help me uh, keep the lights on, as it were. So here's a gem that I would like to share with you uh, from the great mind of T.K. Coleman with the Foundation for Economic Education. I, I have uh, I've encountered very few people who can distill wisdom uh, like T.K. Coleman can do. This guy has uh, he's got a great mind and just and a great heart, which is I guess why his words uh, carry such power. So he says the bad news. No one knows the whole story about you. There are important truths about your life that simply can't be captured in a conversation, an interview, a biography, a memoir, a movie about your past, a job referral, etc. There are things you felt and things you've been through that will never be taken into account by people who evaluate your intelligence, your character, your success, your value, your intentions, and so on. In fact, he says there are things about you that you don't even know. We're always being underestimated or overestimated in some capacity. And his point is the human soul is incalculable. For better and for worse, no one will figure you out or get you in all the ways you might want or need. Now, here's the good news. The goal of life isn't to be fully and fairly understood by people. The goal of life is to realize that we are fully known by a God who is gracious beyond the meager boundaries of fairness. And he says, in him lies our trust, our security, and our confidence. The unbridled fear of man leads to depression and destruction. Fear God. Live for his love and approval and rest in that gentle voice that says, you are known by me. That's where peace is. This is where power is. I realize not everybody is going to, you know, not everybody believes in God, but still. What a, what a powerful thought. And I agree with, with TK in, in the idea of if you're trying to find peace in a world where, uh, how do I put this nicely? Peace is uh, rare, <laughs> to put it mildly. That's where you find it. You find it in knowing that uh, whatever you're doing with your life is in harmony with what your creator would have you do. And it's going to be different for every person. So, you know, it's not like, you know, I've got to be just like them or, you know, you don't have to keep up with the Joneses. Even in a spiritual sense, you don't have to. You are here on a very unique journey, and the things that you are supposed to learn on that journey are for you. 
Now, if you come to that realization, of course, this, this is the scary part. There's also the possibility, well, maybe there's something that's just mine that God expects of me. In other words, there's, there's a mission, there's a purpose that I'm supposed to fulfill. I only tell you this because I've been down that road. I spent many happy years oh, just drifting along with the current. Oh, yes, let it carry me where it will. Life is a grand adventure. And, you know, you just try to minimize the conflict, minimize the discomfort, and, you know, do what you can to enjoy the scenery along the way. But I had a good friend who pointed out a long time ago that uh, you weren't put here just to drift with the current. Every one of us has something we ought to be doing, something we should be stepping up, some way that we ought to be making a difference that only we can fulfill. And I didn't want to believe him. In fact, I was angry for weeks afterwards because I felt like, ah, oh, man, you took, the, you took the blinders off. I'm forced to see something that I really didn't want to acknowledge because it meant I'm going to have to step out of my comfort zone and I'm going to have to actually start making more of myself and using my life in ways that I haven't been. Not primarily for my benefit, but for, for whatever I'm supposed to be doing to, to improve the world around me, to serve the people around me. That was a really tough realization. And I, I don't know exactly why I'm sharing this with you. Actually, I've got off on a tangent here. But I know there are people who are likewise feeling that, that call, if you will that uh, they have something for which they need to step up and with God's help, make a difference. I'm pretty sure you're one of those people. I'm not telling you that to, you know, to intimidate you or make you feel like, oh boy, as if my life wasn't complicated enough. What I want you to understand is that when you embrace that, when you say, okay, I will do it. And you do it with the attitude of not, oh, well, everybody get out of my way. That includes you too, God. You get out of my way so that I can go handle this. But when you do it with the humility to ask for help and to really develop whatever the gifts, the talents are that, that God sent you here with, you will be shocked to discover who you really are and what you are really capable of. But that's where you're going to find peace. TK is right. That's where your peace is. That's where your power is. And, and it, it doesn't matter. The approval of other people will not matter to you as much. The, the, the trappings of what the world considers, you know, success. You're not driving a Bugatti? Well, pfft, why should we take you seriously? It doesn't matter. Because you know that you are, how can I put this, in harmony, in sync with your creator. I'll step off, I'll step down from the pulpit here. I didn't mean for this to turn into a Sunday school lesson, but that was on my heart. That was, that was in my heart, and I just felt like I needed to share it. Now, let me segue into another topic here that, uh, again, this might push some people to the edge of their comfort zone, but please bear with me. Have you noticed how the only absolute we're still allowed to believe in is that there are no absolutes, right? There's no right, there's no wrong. That's been a mantra for quite some time, but now it's actually got being codified in law. I actually watched a a video yesterday of the Caldwell School Board in Idaho having a meeting, and they were talking about, um, you know, gender-affirming stuff being put into the curriculum, and there were concerned parents who showed up. And I'm telling you, I, I watched, it's about a two-hour-long Zoom video, and uh, finally a state senator got up. And start, first of all, he challenged the the school board saying, you know what, you guys are bending the rules. You're not following your own rules when it comes to, you know, allowing comments or, uh, you know, how, how you allow people to comment to you. 
And he called them out and basically just said, look, these are our children. We will not stand by and let them be indoctrinated with things that are actually harmful, that that teach them to hate other people or teach them even worse to hate themselves. We're not going to stand by and do this. And they, it, it so rattled the, the school board, they, they adjourned the meeting. I mean, the, the audience was not happy, but it was like, whoa, <laughs> they, they felt the heat. And, I, and I've seen, you know, some of the comments on Twitter. Well, this guy was being a jerk, man. He was, he was being rude. He was talking rude to the school board there. And here's the thing. Sorry, I sound like Joe Biden when I say, here's the thing, Jack. Corn Pop would tell you this. <laughs> no, there is no polite way to rein in the people who are in power or some position of authority who have set their sights on trying to indoctrinate your children. You can't do it politely enough that they'll finally, oh, well, okay, yes, I see exactly what you're saying. Because they are vested in this. Whether it's just to, to be woke, you know, whether it's to, to assure the, the wokesters that, oh, no, we're not opposed to you because they don't want to face, you know, the wrath of cancel culture. But they're not willing to do the right thing. Why is that a controversial thing? I Well... I don't know. You stand up and say, look, I don't want pornographic books in my kid's school library. Well, you're a book burner. That's the overreaction. Boom. That's that's the first place people are going to go. I don't want teachers asking my kid, you know, do you have gender confusion? Can I introduce you to some? What are your pronouns? Oh, you haven't heard about this? Well, here, let me tell you why some people have different pronouns. You might actually be gender fluid. Maybe you want to explore it. I understand. Not every teacher is doing that. But some are. And even though there's this great insistence on the part of the political left, well, there's nothing like this. CRT, you know, that's not taking place. And, you know, gender fluidity, we're not even teaching that in schools. They are. They'll just call it by different names like uh, emotional social learning or, or gender affirming care or something like that. But it's happening. And parents have every right to step up and say, that's wrong. That's not correct for my children. And, you know, the, the sad thing is right now it appears largely to be falling on deaf ears. And, of course, the media is going to back this up with, well, you know, a bunch of angry, bigoted parents were, you know, sounding off at this school board meeting. They were so unruly they had to shut it down. The only reason these parents become unruly is because what they are trying to communicate to these administrators or these bureaucrats is that uh, my kid is not to be used as a social lab rat and I guess it's going to get to the point at some point for some parents you'll you'll know who the serious parents are about protecting their kids because they're going to be the ones who will put their foot down and pull their kids out of state-run schools I know that sounds like a radical thing to say and I say that with the understanding my wife is a school teacher but if the situation continues on the path that it's on they're going to have to that's going to be the responsible thing to do now are they going to pay a price for it oh yeah Oh, yeah, they'll be maligned as well. They're abusing their kids. This is educational neglect. That's what the indoctrinators are going to call it. But if you know right and wrong still exist, you might understand that, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is they don't want their kids being taught false, destructive doctrines and basically uh, groomed into uh, little agitators, little leftists. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let me dive right into a couple of quick articles I wanted to share with you. Just some excerpts from this. Uh, one is the latest from Paul Rosenberg from his freemanspersperspective.com. I signed up for his emails uh, many years ago, and I have never been disappointed with what he puts in my inbox. I just, you know, I don't want to sound like, well, you're quite the fanboy, but um, I'm not kidding when I tell you Paul Rosenberg's take on life and on, you know, just the, the, the current events around us is so based in love and wisdom and and there's there's just there's a gentleness and a goodness in the way that he presents his message that that it has profoundly shaped how I have gone about to delivering my message. I'm not nearly as refined as him, but I'm working to become more like he is as a communicator. And he's got this great essay, if there's life and death, there's right and wrong. Remember, we were talking in the last segment about absolutes. There are no absolutes. Are you sure? Absolutely. Oh, wait. (laughs) That doesn't make sense, does it? So Paul says, life and death are absolute standards, absolute and objective standards. And he says, the absolute standard of life as good is upheld in actual practice by every person who takes medicine or by anyone who avoids danger. Oceans of rhetoric can't negate this, and we're not alone in it. Every other species on this planet acts to stay alive and to flee death. Yes, there are thousands of dogmatists with a deep psychological need to wipe away the possibility of an absolute standard. And yes, they carefully hone their skills of ridicule and vocabulary toward that end. Regardless, he says, they betray themselves every time they take an antibiotic or buy organic produce. Please stop and think about that for a moment. And if that's so, then this also stands. That which sustains and extends life is good or right. That which hinders or ends life is bad or wrong. Now, he says the lords of intimidation and confusion cannot change reality, not no matter how much they may wish to. All they can do is to cloud and confuse human minds. But no matter what they say and no matter how many others they can get to mouth their slogans, we all act for life and against death. And so does every other living thing on this planet. Actions trump words. They trump ridicule. And they very definitely trump theories. So this raises the question, but why all the opposition? Paul's answer is, life leads us forward. Our need to extend and improve life has driven more or less every medical, technological, and agricultural improvement of human history. Why then would anyone want to trivialize it? rather? Well, the first answer is that they simply don't see that fact. They've come to see a constructed reality as the whole playing field of life and are struggling to find status within it. Now, he says, I won't spend time on that whole scene. I've written about it once already. And he links to a previous article on status. By the way, his take on status is brilliant. A second answer is the more important one, which is life, if held to and pursued, will negate the power structures of this world, and fairly soon at that. Life spawns chosen, decentralized, and organic organization. The people and organizations that oppose uh, that, uh, they require our our constraint, rather. They require our automatic compliance, and they couldn't survive any other way. The lords of constructed reality, then, cannot allow life to break out of its constraints, and they fear the recognition of an objective standard because it would wipe away their intellectual sandcastles and make auto-compliance nearly impossible. He says life-spawned organization is everywhere, of course. It's the way healthy families organize themselves. It's how small businesses organize themselves. 
It's also the same way little leagues and book clubs and tutoring clubs and a hundred similar groups organize themselves. This is the model of chosen grouping, and it injects life, decency, and progress into the world. The model of the dogmatists, rulers, think tanks, and other lords of constructed reality require enforced grouping. They forbid, by any number of means, alternatives to themselves. That fact should condemn them right off, except that most people have been confused and conditioned otherwise. They've been taught by the constructed reality that the constructed reality is the only reality and that advocates for anything else are maniacs. By the way, this makes me think about the school board's reaction that I talked about in the last segment. Anyway, the constructed reality then must destroy God because he would be an objective standard. It, would all, it must also trivialize life because it threatens to undo them. And so, if life is a good value, Paul Rosenberg says we should act to extend and enhance it. We do that by using life-friendly tools like chosen grouping, voluntary trade, endless innovation, and the virtues that accompany these things. We also do that by stepping away from the constructed reality, the virtual world of constructed images, constructed narratives, and a permanent stream of fears. He says, fear, as I've noted often, but probably not often enough, is a brain hack. It's kryptonite to the human mind. Fear chains people within the construct, where they're informed endlessly that they must believe what they're told because everyone else does. Life in the construct then becomes all virtual, all vicarious, and all externally derived. It is the antithesis of the model Carl Jung preferred, that the good and great can grow out of our own souls. What we're doing then is building a chosen society, centered on the golden rule. It's the model of the healthy family, the productive small business, and so on. His point is, our way is the better way, the way that takes life as an absolute standard, because it is. I hope that strikes you the way that it did me. That's it's such a unique perspective of, of what we're facing, but I think he's I think he's really onto something. And the need to have absolutes, at least as it pertains to understanding right and wrong, I don't think that's ever been more important. In fact, I'm including in my show notes today uh, a, a Twitter thread unroll. So you just click on the link and it will take it'll have all the posts from this particular Twitter thread all there on one web page for you to read. I just stumbled across this yesterday, and it's a, it's a poster who goes under the, the pseudonym of Aristophanes, who says, I have this feeling that the world has become so much stranger over the last 20 years. The wards that anchor our conventional reality are failing. Maybe this is a historical basis for many of our folk tales and legends. A time of monsters is upon us. Let's ponder. Aristophanes says it's readily apparent that something is wrong. Society's becoming unrecognizable at an increasingly expeditious rate. It feels as if something badly bent finally broke, unleashing unchecked and rapid change at whiplash, whiplash pace. A malevolent magnetism pulls the weak, the vulnerable, the ruthless, and the predatory towards the darkness. Up is down, male is female, good is evil, faith is blasphemy, and beauty is ugly. We're living through a pole shift of malign inversion. Transgression is worship. Innocence is a target. Corruption a goal. As a civilization, we are largely descending into something debased and subhuman. A runaway train with ignoble conductors who threaten violence if you so much as look nervously at the brake lever. 
He says, careening into the dark, one can't help but wonder that the inversion specifically seeks to uh, crap test those who disagree, to drag as many into darkness as possible. The darker it gets, the further we fall as our momentum pushes us further into depravity and shamelessness. Our women are becoming barren whores, our men into catty, low-testosterone vipers of perpetual adolescence. Like hogs at the trough of synthetic sex and attention, they gorge themselves on porn and social media, yet they never seem they never feel full. He says the world is changing and we are changing with it. With the Weimarization comes goblinization. By the way, just if you have ever done any study into what the cultural and social attitudes were like in the Weimar Republic prior to the Third Reich coming to power, you're going to see some really interesting and just downright um, disturbing parallels with what's happening in our society. So as Aristophanes puts it, phenotypes of old like goblins and fae slowly return. The void beckons greedily. Mutation, nutrition, costume, body modification, making us appear less human. The shadow run timeline? And he asks, what horrors await us? Perhaps the monsters of old were real in times such as this when the barrier between this world and others is at its weakest. Perhaps we need to question history itself. We know our masters lie compulsively. We watch them reshape our history right now. Myths and legends become bold. Tricksters come out of hiding. The world returns to the mean, a dark place of mysteries, horrors, and wonders. We once again become prey to be fed upon by things we don't begin to understand, a secret world of witch cults, succubi, and monsters. Whites, ogres, sprites, and spirits, if everything is subjective and nothing is objective, then what's stopping us from this understanding? We're adrift in unreality and the lighthouse is fading. He says, God flooded the earth at least once already to restore the goodness of his creation that had been tainted by the Nephilim. He then forged his covenant with Noah to never again destroy the world by water. And yet they endure. Now, left untended, the garden becomes the forest and the forest becomes the wild. Perhaps we can't see what's going on because we're in the middle of it. The minds of the Renaissance didn't know it as, as such, but we do in hindsight. If this rift between good and evil continues to widen, rapid speciation of humans may rapidly occur for the first time in millennia. Those of faith, vitality, and nature as opposed to those of debasement and wretchedness. What did our ancestors endure in the forgotten past? Those are deep questions, maybe even a little scary, but we should be asking them. This is The Brian Hyde Show.